right, guys, if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, or you just want to read along on the screen today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So we're continuing our series on meals with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We're really trying to drill in at the church to, to own what is really at the heartbeat of, we believe, the way that Jesus carried out his mission, and that is just through what we're calling radically ordinary gospel hospitality. And so radical, not because we're trying to use a corny word, but radical just because it, it, it really is different in our culture to welcome people into the living spaces of our everyday lives. Whether that's a dorm room, whether that's your favorite coffee shop, your favorite restaurant, or your house. It, it's, we, we tend, even sadly as Christians, to say, Here, here's my space where I let my hair down and I can be me. And then here's this other space where I go and do this Christian-y stuff. And Jesus just, you know, kind of drops the bomb and all that. And he says, although I, I, I want you to have healthy boundaries in your life, what it really looks like to love people is to create some time and some margin in your life to say, I don't see you merely as someone that I'm to do stuff with or do stuff for, but someone that I actually love like family. And we believe that's, so it's not, that's, that's radical in our culture of where we, you know, create sort of our, our homes now and to be about back porch instead of front porch where we don't even know who lives beside us and we really, frankly, don't want to get messed up, especially in people who are different than us. And Jesus just says, I'm calling you to a different way, the way that I loved you. It's, it's ordinary because it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not an event. It really doesn't cost a whole lot of money. It's basically just saying to, to people in your life, hey, you want to come over and eat some peanut butter crackers with me? You want to sit down at the park and talk? Anybody can do it. It's just ordinary. It's radical, though, because we've all been conditioned, especially if you grew up in church world, to think that the ordinary is not where the action is. But for Jesus, that's where the action was. And then it, it's gospel because... We believe that it, it's, it's good news. That it's good news for people who feel lonely and sometimes feel lost, sometimes are lost, or feel like they're the least, to actually be seen. To actually have someone make time for them. And to actually say what the Apostle Paul said, we didn't only give you our ministry, we gave you ourselves. And it's what Jesus did. He came to dwell among us. As, a, as the message translation translates us in John, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and Jesus has moved into our lives. And then it's hospitality, which the, the word hospitality uh, coming out of the Greek literally means love of the stranger. So gospel, radically ordinary gospel hospitality isn't just saying I'm going to throw a, an event for my friends and family that I already am comfortable with. No, biblical hospitality is like saying, well, they're welcome too, but really it's making space for the stranger, which is the person you don't know. And so the goal is, is that those who are on the margins of society would find within the people of the kingdom of Jesus a, a, a seat at the table. Welcome. That those who feel like they're on the outside are treated as if they're on the inside in hopes that they will know Jesus. And so... Uh, you might think, oh, well, you're fudging a little bit this morning on this Meals with Jesus with this parable of the prodigal son. But there's a meal in it. It starts with a meal, we're going to see. 
Uh, Chris, you can click on to, to the beginning of the verses. So, so notice he was, they were drawing near to him, and he says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's the context of what provokes, if you don't realize this, the parable of the prodigal sons is, is Jesus eating with sinners. That's the context. He tells three parables in this chapter, but the last one, the parable, as we know it, of the prodigal son is connected to this context. And also within this parable, we see that it ends with a great feast. It ends with a great meal. And so I'm really happy that it just so happened that our, our kids are in here with us this week because this, this is a story, a parable that Jesus gives that uh, I'd probably say this every week, but is, is, is one of the best. We need to know this. We need to have it etched in our hearts. And if you're a literature person, someone once asked Charles Dickens what was the best short story in the English language. And you know what his response was? Parable of the prodigal son. So this is Jesus being amazing Jesus that he is and unfolding for us a picture of what the good news of God is for us. And so, so let's read this and, and I'll, I'll just try not to mess it up today by adding some comments on it as well. So Luke 15, we'll begin verses 1 through 3 and then skip down to the parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Time out. Isn't it? That's how Jesus is, right? Churchy religious people today and all of us sometimes like, oh, we don't want to be around those people. Jesus walks around and all, all the people on the outside want to be with him. Some people don't like it though. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They're grumblers. Grumpy people saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He told them first the parable of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then he gives them the parable of, notice, not just one son, but two. It's very important. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to them, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Just, just imagine this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Son too. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? He said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, we thank you today for your scandalous, amazing grace. We pray that you help us to, to see it a little more clearly today through this parable that Jesus gives us. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to show us where we may not really believe or even like what you have to say here in the real function of our everyday life before you and others. And we pray that you would comfort us with your grace that will be enough for whatever you choose to reveal. And we pray that we would join you in the celebration of the redemption and restoration of all that is lost. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we ask the question, who needs grace, what would be your answer? If you're new, sometimes we talk out loud. Who needs grace? We do, right? Everybody does. Who needs the radical hospitality of God's grace? We do. And that may seem like such a simple question with such an obvious answer. But if we're honest, we oftentimes sort of typecast who it is in the world that really needs God's grace. We think of certain people, certain social status people, certain economically labeled people, and we think those are the people who really need to experience God's grace. Some of you this morning, if you were to be given a, a sheet of paper to write down on, on it the names of people who you want to see experience God's grace, if you were honest, the first person on the list wouldn't maybe be yourself. The first person on your list wouldn't be people filling church buildings all across the religious south today. It would be a certain type. 
But what this parable of the prodigal sons, again plural, a tale of two sons, is that everyone is searching for life, everyone is searching for fulfillment, everyone is searching for value and worth, and that manifests itself sometimes in some extremely rebellious ways. But it equally oftentimes manifests itself in some very religious ways. And I know the word religious is not always used in a negative fashion and really don't want to get in that debate here. It can be a very positive term, but we're just going to go ahead and use it this morning to describe what we see in the life of this older brother. That both the younger son in his rebellion and the older son in his religion are wasting their lives and are looking for a, a fulfillment that can only be found in God's grace. Why do you think it is that sometimes we are so quick to only think that certain types of people need God's grace? If you didn't hear cat, some people we think, you know, this person's the guy with the asterisk by his name. Like we really don't want them to receive grace. What else makes it hard for us to believe everyone needs God's grace? Or why do we often think only certain types of people need his grace? Yeah, we can tend to think that Val said his grace is like kind of sort of a one-time exchange. We're going to talk about this some today, is although uh, many of us in here may not be younger brothers who are lost, we can, we can all be younger brother-ish. And although hopefully not, we're not older brothers who are lost, but we can still be tempted to be older brother-ish. And at the heart of this is a renewed understanding of the grace of God in this tale of two sons that points us to the great son and calls us to embrace our sonship which uh, I, I feel like I need to say this often your sonship is not really about your gender it's about understanding who you are whether male or female in Christ that you are a full heir of the kingdom that through Jesus the great firstborn son of the kingdom we all become sons of grace but this totally affects the way that we view our hospitality to the stranger it's because we're called to see that the stranger sometimes may be wearing tattered rags and the other time the stranger may be wearing a business suit one stranger may not know the parable of the prodigal son from their favorite song on the radio and another person might could quote you the parable of the prodigal son by memory. But we're called not to be fooled by that if we're going to be good missionaries in our culture. But to realize that we're called to take the gospel hospitality of grace 
to both those that we might think of as religious or rebellious. So the first son in this tale of two sons points us to this need that the rebellious need tables of grace. So let's look back here in verses 12 through 24. We see first of all that the younger of these sons says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. What this son is doing, we don't need to belittle this and just see this as some general rebellion, is he is saying to his father, I wish that you were dead. We see that because what he's asking here is that he would get his inheritance from his father while his father was still alive. He was saying to his father, to his dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And we can feel the sting of that today, but particularly in this first century ancient Near Eastern culture, family really was everything. Property really was everything. The son asking the father for this was not just a business deal. It would have been something that would have brought great shame upon this family. Everyone would have known this. That this son was saying, Dad, I just wish you were dead. Can you just go ahead and give me what's mine now? It says, and he, the father, divided the property between them. So again, this is about these two sons. So the father in, in this parable says, okay. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now what this shows us is that the son obviously couldn't take land with him. He couldn't take cattle with him. He couldn't take property with him. So this younger son had to have sold these things. So what now would have been this family's property where they would have found their pride and where they would have been provided for now the son goes and sells it just so he can get the money. And just imagine dad, mom, extended family, older brother is watching somebody else move in. We need to feel that. And younger brother's just walking out with the cash. And he's not going to do it to make an investment to help the rest of the family. Well, it says, he went into a far country. He wants to get away from his family. He wants to get away from the father. So dad's not really dead, and if he stays close to dad, he's going to be aware of the fact he's still alive, and it's going to bug him and aggravate him. He wants to get away. He wants to reinvent himself. He wants to get to live life on his own terms in a new place with, with an, so to speak, a new name where nobody knows him and he can do whatever he wants. Nobody's going to be on his case about it. He feels like, finally, if I go to this far country, I can be free. And I can finally be fulfilled because I don't live anymore under this sort of tyrannical, constrained system that is my father and my family. And it says there he squandered his property in reckless living. This word reckless points us to, to this word we're familiar with, prodigal, which just is talking about just an extravagance. 
just an over-the-top, sort of scandalous way of life. Squandering his property means, again, he's, he's not carrying land with him, but all, all that he possessed due to taking on this early inheritance. And he runs out. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So his plan has backfired, as all our plans where we think we're going to find freedom apart from the Father do. Eventually, we find that what we thought was to be our freedom only becomes our slavery. But he's not yet come to his senses so it says, verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. So he's still thinking, I can figure this out on my own. I can do this. I'm not going to let this stop me. I'd rather be free in my own mind feeding pigs than, than back with my father. It says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. got to the point here where he's envious of pigs. He's, he's watching these pigs and what they have to eat and the life that they have and he's thinking, man, that would be nice. This, this is what sin does to us. Sin is fundamentally irrational. It's, it's foolish, but it's blinding and deceiving. But verse 17, we begin to see the, the, the tables turning and, and hope rising. It says, when he came to himself, he said that he came to himself. His, his senses, his, his reality is starting to break back in. and We'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a few minutes. It says, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Even the servants live better than this in my father's kingdom I will arise and go to my father and say to him father I've sinned against heaven and before you so notice this coming to his senses this isn't this isn't just a a horizontal awakening in his heart but a vertical one it's showing us a real repentance is arising in his heart because it's not just that I sinned against you it's it's God I've sinned against you says, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice there's no sense of entitlement in this, in this repentance. There's no sense of going back and saying, hey, remember who I am. He's owning the fact that what he did was disowned his father. And he's willing to say, hey, this is, this is the reality. Verse 20. We see here the tides turn. We not only see the first son, but we see the first response of the father. It says, and he arose and came to his father. You can just imagine as he's going home, he's probably got his held, head held low. He's probably imagining father, dad will be standing in the background like this for him. Maybe not even standing on the front porch like this. Maybe sitting, sitting in the house, 
cup of coffee, doing his fingers like this, that he'll walk in the door and father might just get up and walk out of the room disgusted. Maybe the best conversation he would have with his father is, I told you so. Maybe, maybe even get a good classic finger point. Look what you did, boy. You brought shame on your family. You've wasted all that I worked for all those years to give you. Just get out of my face. I don't even have time for this. He's thinking best case scenario is dad will say, you can sleep in the barn. And maybe I'll give you a job working here. But I don't even know if your presence on this property is worth it. There might be some of you in here today. That's kind of how you, you view God. And you find yourself living in the pig slop of sin. But here we go. This is why some people call this really the story of the prodigal God. And that might sound offensive to some of you, but if you think of that word prodigal just meaning extravagant and just meaning scandalous, is you've got to feel this because before we get to this second brother in a minute that it's easy for us to pick on, I don't know that, I don't know that we can pick on him so fast. Because here we see this extravagant, over-the-top, really publicly scandalous response of the father. Notice verse 20. When the father sees him a long way off, what does this entail? It entails that it seems like this dad every day was coming outside and he's looking out over the horizon saying, I hope my boy comes home today. I don't care about all he squandered. I don't care about the shame he's brought our family. I don't care about the property that's been lost. I love him and I want him back. Because he sees him a long way off. You can see him every day. Looking out over the horizon. And then one day, here he comes. Head held low. Just hoping to be a slave. Have a little food. And it says his father saw him. It may have been a long time since he's really been seen. But his dad sees him. He sees him, and it says he felt compassion. He, he, he didn't feel scorn. He didn't feel contempt. He felt compassion. That word, he was, he's moved in his heart, in his gut, to love and care for him. And then it says, it just keeps ramping up, that he ran. Now in this first century ancient Near Eastern culture, it would have been very undignified for unlikely elderly man of great status in society to ever run. Just imagine you're, you're at a, a park or something with your dad or granddad considering your age, and, and the icy truck pulls up, and all the kids start running. Ah! And then you look over here, and here's Grandpa or Dad running to the icy truck. And you're just sort of like, oh my goodness. 
that is not very dignified. You are embarrassing me. Well, in this first century culture for a, a person of any type of status, and, and this man obviously was a, a wealthy landowner who had property to, to give to his children, this, this, and he's already, the son's already shamed him. But when he sees him coming, likely wearing, you've been in the church play before, right? Probably not wearing Levi's, but likely wearing some kind of, I don't know what you call that dress thing we wear in the Christmas plays, but, but that, that's legit. For him to have run then, and some of you ladies know what this is like, I don't understand it, but in reading and researching this, for him to run would have not been super easy. He would have had to have hiked up his clothes a little bit. And so if, it, if it's like my dad, sorry dad if you listen to this, right, you're about to be blinded by the, the great tan on the leg, right? Because so, he doesn't do this. He don't wear shorts out to the swimming pool. So he hikes he hacks up his clothes so that he can run to his son. He is willing to look undignified. He is willing to let everyone and anyone around him judge him because of his deep compassion and love for his son that he will take off running. Again, son's probably thinking he's going to get one of these, you know. And here... Here comes dad. He's running. Running. And then what does he do? He embraces him. Not just this cordial handshake or, or not even this sort of, uh, this holy kiss, you know. It says he embraces him. You can almost imagine it. It's like a, like a semi-tackle. Like maybe, and I know I may be stretching it, but one of the things me and my boys love to do, and they want me to do more, but I'm getting too old, is wrestle with them in the floor. Or wrestle, if you're not from around here. In the floor. And I can just imagine, this son's thinking, wow, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm just a mistake. And here, dad comes in for the tackle. He's, he's remembering, wow, I remember that when we were young. Maybe, that's a stretch. He embraces him, and he kisses him. He loves him. And the son starts in with his big speech. He's prepared. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And, he, you know, he's rehearsed this. What are the perfect words I need to say? Because I need to get my... I need to make sure I check all the proper boxes on my repentance speech. And it's almost like he can't even get it out, words out of his mouth. And, and dad's, dad, dad sees his heart. He knows his heart. And it's, cause, so it says the word but. So he's given this and it's like, but the father said to his servants, bring the best robe. And what is going on here? Like, don't just give him some clothes to wear. Bring the best robe that we have. Put a ring on his hand. And this is over-the-top stuff. This likely would have been a ring that would have been a family ring, a family signet, but what, whatever it was and wherever you want to go on that, it was saying like, he is being fully received back into this family. And then he says, put shoes on his feet. 
And then bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. We're going to have a party. And why are we going to have a big party? Why are we going to, back to the way it started, why are we going to eat with this sinner? Because he was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and now he was found. This is why we sing Amazing Grace. Once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And this is why grace is amazing. And it's so amazing, I'm just going to even skip my illustration I have for this point. Because we, this, is, this is enough. We don't need an extra story here. I got one, we'll skip it. Because this is good. This is good news. Do we see the Father with this type of amazing, scandalous, running after you, grace? If you're here this morning and you're a younger brother, or you're here this morning and you're living in a season in your life where you're younger brother-ish, do you realize that the Father is not sitting there waiting to zap you with a lightning bolt from heaven, but He is looking for you to come home? That as you turn to Him, what you will find is He is running for you? That you've not gone too far or done too much, your guilt is not so big, your shame is not too deep, that His grace is not enough. Henry Nouwen says, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. We're, we're all in here prodigal sons at times where we go looking for freedom in places that it really can't be found. We're all these younger sons at times in our life where we think to, to really be fulfilled, I have to get farther away from the Father. We're all younger sons when we love the Father's gifts more than we love Him as the giver. But the good news for all of us is His grace is enough for us even then. It's hard to move on from there. But Son too, and the Father. Not only do the rebellious need these tables of grace, but what we might call the religious need them. And as we look in verses 1 and 2, you don't have to click back there, this, this older brother really is the focus of the story. I mean, this is not how I sort of heard this growing up, whether I was taught it this way or not. It's like all about the younger brother. But in verses 1 and 2, it tells us why Jesus is telling us these parables. We read it earlier. It's because the Pharisees are grumbling because he eats with sinners. So this parable is not a parable that's really primarily directed at the younger brothers around. This is a parable that's being told to everybody who says, that's not right. That's not fair. You shouldn't be allowed to just come home without getting yourself cleaned up, without doing the right thing for a while, and without proving that you really have repented. And if we're honest in here, we may not be a lost older brother, but we can be very older brother-ish. 
I was very refreshed, even though kind of stunned, in one setting where I taught this, to just see a man in the back row raise his hand and say, I agree with the older brother. That's not right. That's not fair. What is the older brother saying here? The older brother, he finds out, he hears there's dancing. He hears a party's going on. At first, maybe he's excited. Hey, we're going to get to have a little fun around here. All the people who deserve to have fun are going to get to have fun. All the people who've paid their dues, all the people who've did the right thing, time for us to have a good time. And then he finds out this news that floors him. Here's why there's a party going on, the servant says. Guess what? Little brother's come home. Remember little brother? Disowned your father, disowned you. Reason why those bad neighbors moved in next door. He's back. And guess what dad did? Oh, pushover dad. Oh, softy dad. He just let him come right back in. You know, who knows? We'll probably replay this in a couple years, won't we? And then just, there goes another third of the property he'll waste. Oh, compassionate dad. He's mad. Verse 28 says he's angry. And he refuses to go into the party. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to be an enabler. He reveals his heart. Because the father comes out, notice, and the father's response, now this, we've got to get this. The father's response to the younger son was grace. And guess what the father's response to the older son is? Grace. Depending on which one of these ditches you tend to fall in, you, you want to say, well, this one should get grace, but not this one. Some of you in here are like, I'm cool with the younger son getting grace, but I'm not so cool with the older son getting grace. And Jesus don't, doesn't play by our rules, does he? And he shows us the truth of the Father is, is there's grace for younger brothers and there's grace for older brothers. There's grace for the younger brother ish here, there's grace for the older brother ish here. It says his Father entreats him. treats him he's 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 saying come on son come on into the party but he answered his father look these many years I served you notice notice that word I going through here I never disobeyed your command you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours notice he's, he's not calling him brother right and my brother no more this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. He is ticked off. And why is he ticked off? Because he feels entitled. He has a view that his relationship with the father is dependent upon his good deeds. He believes he's earned his right to be a true son. And he does only believe that he's earned that right. He believes he's entitled to that right. And therefore he believes the Father owes him. The 
You need to check your heart to see if you're older brother or older brother-ish. Do you have a view of the Father that you believe that He owes you things because of your obedience and faithfulness? And you can especially check that when you go through hard seasons and deep suffering. Because that's oftentimes when the older brother's really revealed in us. God, did I not serve you all these years? And it looks like this other person's got it better than me. But the Father in grace entreats him and he reminds him. Verse 31. He said to him, Son, you're always with me. I mean, you, you, you're with me. And all that's mine is yours. It's just, it's all yours. But also it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and alive and he is lost and is found. And we, we don't see an end here to how the Pharisees are going to respond, the older brothers. But there's an invitation here that's saying to them, you have me, but am I enough? Or were you using me? Am I just here? Am I just to you somebody that gives stuff? You see in this parable, the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. The older brothers ran somewhere else. It looks a lot better, and it's a lot more socially acceptable, particularly in religious circles, but he's every bit as lost. Because he thinks that the Father is just someone that exists to give him a payment for what he does. If you're an older brother this morning, or older brother is, Jesus may be calling you to something you've never been called to before. He's calling you to repent of your good deeds. book of Isaiah, it says that our righteousness that we seek to live in our own flesh is as filthy rags before the Father. Dirty minstrel cloth is what that was. Saying this is, you think you're doing good to, to, to earn this place before me? Oh, that atones for your sin and, and that welcomes you into my holy presence saying you can't be too, God, too good to not be equally needy of God's grace there may be some of you in here today who you do a lot of really good things and you read your Bible really often you pray really often you share the gospel really often and you love the poor really often those things are great but if you're doing those things from a heart seeking to earn your place before God, or you're doing those things seeking to earn your, your place within certain groups of people in your life or in your city, if you're doing those things to make you entitled before the Father, then those things are dead works. Because you're not serving God or loving God or loving others, you're loving yourself. But the good news is, the Father isn't turning away from you now. He's entreating you. Come on in. Come to the party. Because older brothers are the most wore out, tired, bitter, broken people there are on the inside. 
that Jesus is offering you rest. We quote that other John Newton song often, the author of Amazing Grace, he's saying, lay your deadly doing down. So, we, time ain't good, but we got to talk real quick about another son in this story. The son, back to verses 1 and 2. The son who is eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. Now this is where the news gets really good. It's already good. But how is this father not unjust? I mean, because if we're honest, we got to really kind of think, that really doesn't seem super fair, just. Does that mean, you know, we just kind of do whatever we want and God with a swipe of his hand says, ah, oh, it didn't really matter. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls. No, in the story behind the first and second son is a third son, a better older brother, we might say. You see, these older brothers what they should have been doing was taking the law of God, which at the heart of it was mercy and not sacrifice, and they should have been pursuing the younger brother. They should have been not only there with the father, but the father should have been able to send that older son out to find that younger son. This is what the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament were called to do. This is what Jesus earlier in this text is saying. If, if one of the 99 leaves, you go after the one. But they didn't go there. And so often we don't go there. But the good news is that Jesus did. He is the great older brother who left home to pursue us, to pursue you, to go after you. And not only did he go after you, but when he found you in the pig slop of your sin or in the purity of your self-righteousness, if he took all that on himself. The wages of sin is death, God says. Jesus comes as our great older brother in his prodigal extravagant rescue mission and he pays for the sins of younger brothers and older brothers alike on the cross so that we can be brought into the family of God. This great feast is paid for. Our seat at the table is purchased. And our identity now in the kingdom of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Jesus looks at you and he says, I am not ashamed to call you brother. And through our union with Christ, the Father looks down on you and says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You may still have the stench of your sin on you. You may have, still have the stench of your self-righteousness on you. But now I'm going to take this robe of the family, the robe of Christ's righteousness, and I'm going to place that on you. You're covered, you're cleansed, you're mine. 
And in a world where we're often told that we have to forgive ourselves and we're like, we don't know how that we can do that, is Jesus saying, you're right, you can't forgive yourself. But I can. The Father says, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and you are family. It doesn't matter if you feel that. It doesn't matter if sometimes in your self-loathing you like that. This is the good news of the gospel. And that's why we want to have tables of gospel hospitality. In neighborhoods, in a city full of younger brothers, but really full of older brothers. Because we want these tables spread where we can say God's grace is greater than your sin or your self-righteousness. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us through Jesus. And we pray now as we come to your table that we would come resting in his finished work for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our great older brother. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you brought us to our senses and opened our eyes to the glory of Christ. May we see 